chapter 19 cultivating community james 3:18 you can develop a healthy robust community that lives right with god and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other treating each other with dignity and honor acts 2:42 they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles the life together the common meal and the prayers community requires commitment only the holy spirit can create real fellowship between believers but he cultivates it with the choices and commitments we make paul points out this dual responsibility when he says you are joined together with peace through the spirit so make every effort to continue together in this way it takes both god's power and our effort to produce a loving christian community unfortunately Many people grow up in families with unhealthy relationships so they lack the relational skills needed for real fellowship. They must be taught how to le- to get along with each other and relate to others in God's family. Fortunately, the New Testament is filled with instruction on how to share life together. Paul wrote, "I am writing these things to you so you will know how to live in the family of God. That family is the church." If you're tired of fake fellowship and you would like to cultivate real fellowship and a loving community in your small group, Sunday school class and church, you'll need to make some tough choices and take some risks. 1. Cultivating community takes honesty. You will have to care enough to lovingly speak the truth even when you would rather gloss over a problem or ignore an issue. While it is much easier to remain silent when others around us are harming themselves, or others with a sinful pattern it is not the loving thing to do most people have no one in their lives who loves them enough to tell them the truth even when it's painful so they continue in self destructive ways often we know what needs to be said to someone but our fears prevent us from saying anything many fellowships have been sabotaged by fear no one had the courage to speak up in the group while a member's life fell apart The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love because we can't have community without candor. Solomon said, an honest answer is a sign of true friendship. Sometimes this means caring enough to lovingly confront one who is sinning or is being tempted to sin. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone in your group does something wrong, you who are spiritual should go to that person and gently help them make right decisions again. Many church fellowships and small groups remain superficial because they are afra- afraid of conflict. Whenever an issue pops up that might cause tension or discomfort, it is immediately glossed over in order to preserve a false sense of peace. Mr. Don't rock the boat jumps in and tries to smooth everyone's ruffled feathers. The issue is never resolved and everyone lives with an underlying frustration. Everyone knows about the problem but no one talks about it openly. This creates a sick environment of secrets where gossip thrives. Paul's solution was straightforward. No more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we are all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Real fellowship, whether in a marriage, a friendship or your church, depends on frankness. In fact, The tunnel of conflict is the pass- passageway to in- intimacy in any relationship. Until you care enough to confront and resolve the underlying barriers, you will never grow close to each other. 
When conflict is handled correctly, we grow closer to each other by facing and resolving our differences. The Bible says, in the end, people appreciate frankness more than flattery. Frankness is not a license to say anything you want, wherever and whenever you want. It is not rudeness. The Bible tells us, there is a right time and a right way to do everything. Thoughtless words leave lasting wounds. God tells us to speak to each other in the church as loving family members. Never use harsh words when you correct an older man, but talk to him as if he were your father. Talk to younger men as if they were your brothers, older women as if they were your mothers, and younger women as if they were your sisters. Sadly, thousands of fellowships have been destroyed by a lack of honesty. Paul had to rebuke the Corinthian church for their passive code of silence in allowing immorality in their fellowship. Since no one had the courage to confront it, he said, you must not simply look the other way and hope it goes away on its own. Bring it out on in the open, deal with it. Better devastation and embarrassment than damnation. You pass it off as a small thing, but it's anything but that. You shouldn't act as if everything is just fine when one of your Christian companions is promiscuous or crooked, is flip with God or rude friends, gets drunk or becomes greedy and predatory. You can't just go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. I am not responsible for what the outsiders do, but don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? 2. Cultivating community takes humility. Self-importance, smugness, and stubborn pride destroy fellowship faster than anything else. Pride builds up, build walls between people. Humility builds bridges. Humility is the oil that smoothes and soothes relationships. That's why the Bible says, clothe yourself with humility toward one, one another. The, the proper dress for fellowship is a humble attitude. The rest of that verse says, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the other reason we need to be humble. Pride blocks God's grace in our lives, which we must have in order to grow, change, heal, and help others. We receive God's grace by humbly admitting that we need it. The Bible says anytime we are prideful, we are living in opposition to God. That is a foolish and dangerous way to live. You can develop humility in very practical ways by admitting your weaknesses, by being patient with others' weaknesses, by being open to correction, and by pointing the spotlight on others. Paul advised, live in harmony with each other. Don't try to act important, but enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. To the Christians in Philippi, he wrote, Give more honor to others than to yourself. Do, do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking more of others. Humble people are so focused on serving others, they don't think of themselves. 3. Cultivating community takes courtesy. Courtesy is respecting our differences, being considerate of each other's feelings, and being patient with people who irritate us. The Bible says, we must bear the burden of being considerate of the doubts and fears of others. Paul told Titus, God's people should be bright 
should be big-hearted and cautious. In every church and in every small group, there is always at least one difficult person, usually more than one. These people may have special emotional needs, deep insecurities, irritating mannerisms, or pure social skills. You might call them the EGR people, extra grace required. God put these people in our midst for both their benefit and ours. They are an opportunity for growth and a test of fellowship. Will we love them as brothers and sisters and treat them with dignity? In a family, acceptance isn't based on how smart or beautiful or talented you are. It's based on the fact that we belong to each other. We defend and protect family. A family member may be a little goofy, but she is one of us. In the same way, the Bible says, Be devoted to each other like a loving family. Excel in showing respect for each other. The truth is, we all have quirks and annoying traits. But community has nothing to do with compatibility. The basis for our fellowship is our relationship to God. We are family. One key to courtesy is to understand where people are coming from. Discover their history. When you know what they have been through, you will be more understanding. Instead of thinking about how far they still have to go, think about how far they have come in spite of their hearts. Another part of courtesy is not downplaying other people's doubts. Just because you don't fear something doesn't make it an invalid feeling. Real community happens when people know it is safe enough to share their doubts and fears without being judged. 4. Cultivating community takes confidentiality. Only in the safe environment of warm acceptance and trusted confidentiality will people open up and share their deepest hearts, needs, and mistakes. Confidentiality does not mean keeping silent while your brother or sister sins. It means that what is shared in your group needs to stay in your group, and the group needs to deal with it, not gossip to others about it. God hates gossip, especially when it is thinly disguised as a prayer request for someone else. God says, gossip is spread by wicked people. They stir up trouble and break up friendships. Gossip always causes hurt and divisions, and it destroys fellowship. And God is very clear that we are to confront those who cause division among Christians. They may get mad and leave your group or church if you confront them about their divisive actions, but the fellowship of the church is more important than any individual. 5. Cultivating community takes frequency. You must have frequent, regular contact with your group in order to to build genuine fellowship. Relationships take time. The Bible tells us, let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another. We are to develop the habit of meeting together. A habit is something you do with frequency, not occasionally. You have to spend time with people, a lot of time, to build deep relationships. This is why fellowship is too shallow, is so shallow in many churches. We don't spend enough time together and the time we do spend is usually listening to one person speak. Community is built not on convenience, well, we'll get together when I feel like it, but on the conviction that I need it for spiritual health. If you want to cultivate real fellowship, it will mean meeting together even when you don't feel like it, because you believe it is important. The first Christians met together every day. They worshiped together regularly at the temple each day, 
met in small groups in homes for communion, and shared their meals with great joy and thankfulness. Fellowship requires an investment of time. If you are a member of a small group or class, I urge you to make a group of covenant that includes the nine characteristics of biblical fellowship. We will share our true feelings, authenticity, encourage each other, mutuality, support each other, sympathy, forgive each other, mercy, speak the truth in love, honesty, admit our weaknesses, humility, respect our differences, courtesy, not gossip, confidentiality, and make group a priority, frequency. When you look at the list of characteristics, it is obvious why genuine fellowship is so rare. It means giving up our self-centeredness and independence in order to become interdependent. But the benefits of sharing life together far outweighs the costs and it's, it prepares us for heaven. Day 19. Thinking about my purpose. Point to ponder. Community requires commitment. Verse to remember. First John 3.16 we understand what love is when we realize that Christ gave his life for us. That means we must give our lives for other believers. Question to consider. How can I help cultivate today the characteristics of real community in my small group and my church? Chapter 20. Restoring Broken Fellowship. 2 Corinthians 5.18 God has restored our relationship with him through Christ and has given us this ministry of restoring relationships. Relationships are always worth restoring. Because life is all about learning how to love, God wants us to value relationships and make the effort to maintain them instead of discarding them whenever there is a rift, a hurt, or a conflict. In fact, the Bible tells us that God has given us the ministry of restoring relationships. For this reason, a significant amount of the New Testament is devoted to teaching us how to get along with one another. Paul wrote, If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being a community of the Spirit means anything to you, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Paul taught that our ability to get along with each other is a mark of spiritual maturity. Since Christ wants his family to be known for our love for each other, broken fellowship is a disgraceful testimony to unbelievers. This is why Paul was so embarrassed that the members of the church in Corinth were splitting into warring factions and even taking each other to court. He wrote, Shame on you. Surely there is at least one wise person in your fellowship who can settle a dispute between fellow Christians. He was shocked that no one in the church was mature enough to resolve the conflict peaceably. In the same letter, he said, I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. If you want God's blessing on your life and you want to be known as a child of God, you must, love, you must learn to be a peacemaker. Jesus said, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Notice Jesus didn't say, Blessed are the peace lovers, because anyone, everyone loves peace. Neither did he say, Blessed are the peaceable, who are never disturbed by anything. Jesus said, Blessed are those who work for peace, those who actively seek to resolve conflict. 
peacemakers are rare because peacemaking is hard work because you are formed to be a part of god's family and the second purpose of your life on earth is to learn how to love and relate to others peacemaking is one of the most important skills you can develop unfortunately most of us were never taught how to resolve conflict peacemaking is not avoiding conflict running from a problem pretending it doesn't it doesn't exist or being afraid to talk about it is actually cowardice jesus the prince of peace was never afraid of conflict on occasion he provoked it for the good of everyone sometimes we need to avoid conflict sometimes we need to create it and sometimes we need to resolve it that's why we must pray for the holy spirit's continual guidance peacemaking is also not appeasement always giving in acting like a doormat and allowing others to always run over you is not what jesus had in mind he refused to back down on many issues standing his ground in the face of evil opposition how to restore our relationship as believers god has called us to settle our relationships with each other here are seven biblical steps to restoring fellowship one talk to god before talking to the person discuss the problem with god if you will pray about the conflict first instead of gossiping to a friend you will often discover that either god changes your heart or he changes the other person without your help all your relationships will go smoother if you will just pray more about them as david did with his psalms use pl- use prayer to ventilate vertic- vertically tell god your frustrations cry out to him he's never sub- surprised or upset by your anger heart insecurity or any other emotions so tell him exactly how you feel Most conflict is rooted in unmet needs. Some of these needs can only be met by God. When you expect anyone, a friend, spouse, boss, or family member to meet a need that only God can fulfill, you are setting yourself up for disappointment and bitterness. No one can meet all of your needs except God. The apostle James noted that many of our conflicts are caused by prayerlessness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You want something but don't get it. You don't you do not have because you do not ask God. Instead of looking to God, we look to others to make us happy and then get angry when they fail us. God says, "Why don't you come to me first?" 2. Always take the initiative. It doesn't matter whether you are the offender or the offended. God expects you to make the first move. Don't wait for the other party. Go to them first. Restoring broken fellowship is so important. Jesus commanded that it even take priority over group worship. He said, "If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave it immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then only then come back and work things out with God." When fellowship is strained or broken, plan a peace conference immediately don't procrastinate make excuses or promise i'll get around to it someday schedule a face to face meeting as soon as possible delay only deepens resentment and makes matters worse in conflict time heals nothing it causes hurt to fast to fester acting quickly also reduces the spiritual damage to you the bible says sin including unresolved conflict 
blocks our fellowship with God and keeps our prayers from being answered besides making us miserable. Job's friends reminded him, to worry yourself to death with resentment will be a foolish, senseless thing to do and you are only hurting yourself with your anger. The success of a peace conference often depends on choosing the right time and place to meet. Don't meet when either of you are tired or rushed or will be interrupted. The best time is when you both are at your best. 3. Sympathize with your feelings. Use your ears more than your mouth. Before attempting to solve any disagreement, you must first listen to people's feelings. Paul advised, look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. The phrase, look out for, is the Greek word skopos, from which we form our words telescope and microscope. It means play, pay close attention, focus on their feelings, not the facts. Begin with sympathy, not solutions. Don't try to talk people out of how they feel at first. Just listen and let them unload emotionally without being defensive. Nod that you understand even when you don't agree. Feelings are not always true or logical. In fact, resentment makes makes us act and think in foolish ways. David admitted, when my thoughts were bitter and my feelings were hurt, I was as stupid as an animal. We all act beastly when hurt. In contrast, the Bible says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Patience comes from wisdom, and wisdom comes from hearing the perspective of others. Listening says, I value your opinion, I care about our relationship, and you matter to me. The cliche is true. People don't care what we know until they know we care. To restore fellowship, we must bear the burden of being considerate of the doubts and fears of others. Let's please the other fellow, not ourselves, and do what is, what is for his good. It is a sacrifice to patiently absorb the anger of others, especially if it's unfounded. But remember, this is what Jesus did for you. He endured unfounded, malicious anger in order to save you. Christ did not indulge his own feelings. As scripture says, the insults of those who insult you fall on me. 4. Confess your part of the conflict. If you are serious about restoring a relationship, you should begin with admitting your own mistakes or sin. Jesus said it's the way to see things more clearly. First, get rid of the log from your own eye, then perhaps you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Since we all have blind spots, you may need to ask a third party to help you evaluate your own actions before meeting with the person with whom you have a conflict. Also, ask God to show you how much of the problem is your fault. Ask. Am I the problem? Am I being unrealistic, insensitive or too sensitive? The Bible says, if we claim that we are free of sin, we are only fooling ourselves. Confession is a powerful tool for reconciliation. Often the way we handle a conflict creates a bigger heart than the original problem itself. When you begin by humbly admitting your mistakes, it diffuses the other person's anger and disarms the attack because they were probably expecting you to be defensive. Don't make excuses or shift the blame. Just only honestly own up to any part you have played in the conflict. Accept responsibility for your mistakes and ask for forgiveness. 5. 
attack the problem, not the person. You cannot fix the problem if you are consumed with fixing the blame. You must choose between the two. The Bible says, A gentle response diffuses anger, but a sharp tongue kindles a temper fire. You will never get your point across by being cross. So choose your words, your words wisely. A soft answer is always better than a sarcastic one. In resolving conflict, how you say it is as important as what you say. If you say it offensively, it will be received defensively. God tells us, a wise mature person is known for his understanding. The more pleasant his words, the more persuasive he is. Nagging never works. You are never persuasive when you are abrasive. During the Cold War, both sides agreed that some weapons were so destructive they should never be used. Today, chemical and biological weapons are banned, and the stockpiles of nuclear weapons are being reduced and destroyed. For the sake of fellowship, you must destroy your arsenal of relational and clear nuclear weapons, including condemning, belittling, comparing, labeling, insulting, condescending, and being sarcastic. Paul sums it up this way. Do not use harmful words, but only helpful words, the kind that build up and provide what is needed, so that what you say will do good to those who hear you. 6. Cooperate as much as possible. Paul said, do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everybody. Peace always has a price tag. Sometimes it, it costs our pride. It often costs our self-centeredness. For the sake of fellowship, do your best to compromise, adjust to others, and show preference to what they need. A phrase of Jesus' seventh beatitude beat says, You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of comp- or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. 7. Emphasize reconciliation, not resolution. It is unrealistic to expect everyone to agree about everything. Reconciliation focuses on the relationship, while resolution focuses on the problem. When we focus on reconciliation, the problem loses significance and often becomes irrelevant. We can re-establish a relationship even when we are unable to resolve our differences. Christians often have legitimate, honest disagreements and differing opinions, but we can disagree without being disagreeable. The same diamond looks different from different angles. God expects unity, not uniformity, and we can walk arm in arm without seeing eye to eye on every issue. This doesn't mean you give up on finding a solution. You may need to continue discussing and even debating, but you do it in a spirit of harmony. Reconciliation means you bury the hatchet, not necessarily the issue. Who do you need to contact as a result of this chapter? With whom do you need to restore fellowship? Don't delay another second. Pause right now and talk to God about that person. Then pick up the phone and begin the process. These seven steps are simple, but they are not easy. It takes a lot of effort to restore a relationship. That's why Peter urged, work hard at living in peace with others. But when you work for peace, you are doing what God will do. That's why God calls peacemakers his children. Day 20. Thinking about my purpose. Point to ponder. Relationships are always worth restoring. Verse to remember. Romans 12:18. Do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everybody. 
question to consider. Who do I need to restore a broken relationship with today?